Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be having a discussion about the military, and very specifically the military and the interaction between uh, the Christian faith and the soldiers who serve, uh, the chaplains and the military that employs them, and what's taking place with the, the social experimentation that's now taking place in the military as the result of the shift of our societies away from the traditional Judeo-Christian values to the postmodern values that are increasingly becoming the norm across the culture. And one of the reasons I was so interested in having this particular conversation is those of you who follow uh, my columns in, in various publications will know that I've actually done a lot of interviews uh, with members of the different arms of the Canadian military, and they have a huge problem with the fact that they're often being forced to sit through training that is ideological in nature rather than military in nature. Uh, In some cases, they're actually being encouraged to attend pride parades and they're being encouraged to engage in activities that they have a moral problem with because uh, they simply uh, don't believe that those things are okay because they still hold traditional Christian values. And there was a book that, uh, it it was published a few years ago, but I actually came across it last year when I was uh, vacationing in the United States in Boston and Plymouth. And it's called The Faith of the American Soldier, and it's by Stephen Mansfield. I recognized the author right away because Stephen Mansfield was the author of a, of a best-selling book called The Faith of George W. Bush. Uh, that book was actually credited by Time Magazine for helping to shape the 2004 election. And I've read the book several times uh, during the Bush presidency. It's, it's incredibly written, and it really captures George W. Bush as a man of, of sincere faith and decency and integrity. As a side note, I think a lot of people uh, in the last four or five years have started to recognize that George W. Bush wasn't the monster they made him out to be, that he was fundamentally a good and decent man, regardless of his flaws and regardless of his failings. Anyways, when I saw a book by Stephen Mansfield on the faith of the American soldier, I immediately bought myself a copy, and I was extraordinarily impressed by his analysis of the intersections of faith in the American military uh, and, and how the chaplains deal with the fact that an increasingly secular government is employing people uh, who are supposed to serve the religious needs of the men and women in uniform. And it was, it was, it was quite incredible, especially because uh, he was actually embedded in Iraq in 2005, and many of the stories he has are first-hand stories. And because the American military especially is often associated with a lot of Christian imagery, just think for a moment of the, the fields of white crosses that mark where the, uh, the fallen heroes are buried. Uh, I really wanted to have a discussion uh, with Stephen Mansfield about the intersection of faith and the military. And so I fired them off an email and he graciously agreed to come on the show. And this is that conversation. So what gave you the idea to write this book, The Faith of the American Soldier? Well, just prior to that, I'd written a book called The Faith of George W. Bush, and it uh-huh. was uh, real involved in the presidential election in 2004, and uh, and I had a bit of a platform. I was grateful for that. And uh, at the time that the publishers began asking me what I'd like to write next, we were getting a lot of stories about religious movements amongst the American soldiers in Iraq. 
And I was intrigued by that. I had been studying millennials and religion for quite some time, but I hadn't really spent much time paying attention to soldiers and uh, millennial soldiers and what was going on with them uh, in, in the battlefield. So uh, I got permission from the Pentagon to be embedded with U.S. troops in Iraq, and I, and I went over there and, and did the research for the book. So essentially it was the fact that the millennials were taking their non-traditional approach to religion onto the battlefield, and, and commanders were wrestling with what that meant exactly, and I wanted to get ahead of that story and, and tell, tell the story and perhaps do some good with it. Well, so in the book, you first kind of go through the, the long religious tradition of, of the American military and the collective American forces. What was it like to tell that story and kind of give a bit of an overview of, of what the, the delicate dance between faith and the military has been in the past? Well, it, it, it is a fascinating story. There's no question that when soldiers are on the battlefield, almost all of them are making some kind of deeper religious journey. It may not be a traditional religious journey. Uh, it may not be a Christian religious journey, but they're all making some kind of, of, of deeper religious journey. So um, obviously in earlier times in American history, most of that was Christian. Christian chaplains were involved. Revival services shaped entire wars. We now know, for example, that the American Civil War was dramatically impacted by massive religious revivals that occurred amongst the southern troops, etc. So it's a fascinating story and, and, and one that uh, really only specialists tend to know. Um, and, of course, then you also have to deal with that history up against our First Amendment history. Um, our Constitution requires a separation of uh, not so much the institutional uh, church and state, well, really the institutional church and state, but not so much religion and state. Religion's meant to be of influence, um, but our founding fathers didn't want the, uh, you know, the church and the church leadership to sort of dominate the society. So uh, this, this then becomes an issue when you're talking about chaplains and you're talking about the, you know, chaplains paid by the U.S. government, etc. So all of it became really, really fascinating. And then I realized, of course, that many people in Washington, where I spent, my wife and I split our time between Washington and Nashville, many people in Washington didn't know anything about these issues, didn't right. know about the challenges chaplains were dealing with, didn't know about the religious surge going on amongst the troops. And I thought if I could write a, a, a book that told this history and then brought it to, to the contemporary scene, that perhaps I could advise these people a little bit. We could have some wiser policies regarding these things. What are some of the stories that you discovered about the uh, the American military chaplains? One of the things that I found most inspiring about the book is these people who went in to to serve the the troops in a religious way. But some of their stories are just really incredible. It, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, these people, in my view, are heroes uh, of whatever faith they're from. These are people who go into battle unarmed. And uh, in some branches of the military, they don't allow the chaplains to, quote-unquote, cross the wire and actually go into harm's way. Um, but Marine chaplains and Navy chaplains, really, who minister to the Marines, they actually go into uh, battle with these Marine units. And so, therefore, there they are, unarmed, uh, and uh, you know, ministering to these soldiers as they are shot, as they die, uh, before they go out, encouraging them. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty stunning. And many of them are incredibly heroic, uh, not only in terms of the fact that they're facing, you know, they're in harm's way and facing their own death, um, but they've been known to rescue civilians. They've been known to run out into the battlefield and pull a man out, out of the line of fire and so on, a man who's wounded. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing what they have accomplished. And, you know, this is in, the, this is in a grand tradition of chaplains in the military in, in, in Times Square in New York. Um, there's a statue to an, an Irish chaplain, you know, who ministered to World War One soldiers in a, a unit from New York. And so, uh, Father, you know, a, a number of those kinds of statues around the U.S. celebrating brave chaplains. So uh, that, that grand tradition has, is being continued, even though the average American wouldn't know them. A lot of people 
aren't aware of, of the story that you told in the book, The Faith of the American Soldier, which is why I suppose people like me picked it up in the first place. I actually had read your book, The Faith of, of George W. Bush, during his presidency a couple of times and, and really enjoyed that one. And then when this book came out, I thought, well, I wonder what the story is here. And, and the stories that you tell are very, very interesting. Sort of introduce us to, to that topic uh, just by giving us a few stories that, that you encountered uh, while you were embedded as, as a way of, of highlighting what it was actually like uh, for soldiers in, in Iraq and, and how they interacted with faith, especially in very non-traditional ways. Well, it's interesting. The soldiers who went to war in Iraq from the U.S. were, uh, interestingly, a little bit older and better educated than many soldiers had been in previous wars. Uh, this is because this was an all-volunteer army, and most of them were conscripted. Well, I shouldn't use the word conscripted. Most of them were uh, engaged from universities, so they were already doing some college. And uh, yet they took their kind of non-traditional faith approach onto the battlefield. So when I got there and I was embedded in Iraq, one of the stories that was that was really circulating and was an encouragement to a lot of soldiers was the story of Sergeant C. And this had actually been told in the Army Times. It was very well known and very well documented. Uh, Sergeant C. went out on Christmas Day in 2005 uh, to unearth a nest of insurgents that he'd been ordered to take his unit to unearth. Um, he rounded a corner during this operation, and an Iraqi officer was standing there with a 45 caliber pointed right at his face. Well, anybody, those in your audience who know about weaponry, know that this should have been instant death when the uh -huh. Rocky officer pulled the, 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 the trigger, obviously, a 45 caliber will almost take a man's head off. Um, the, the Rocky officer fired, the gun sounded, and Sergeant C was still standing. So Sergeant C advanced on the Rocky officer, who was just stunned, um, took him back to the you know, POW area, so to speak. And uh, as he was going back in the Humvee uh, to base, uh, his his fellow soldier said, you've got some blood coming out of your mouth, and uh, you probably need to go to the DFAC and, and, uh, and, and have them, uh, you know, have them check you, go back to the, to the clinic. So he went back, and here's what happened. I mean, this is actually very well documented. Uh, he assumed, of course, that the, the, the Iraqi officer's gun had misfired. Well, it had not misfired. It had actually fired a bullet into Sergeant C. But, it, but what happened was the bullet went through his upper lip, and he had a very thick mustache, which is why nobody knew that, um, that the bullet had actually penetrated his upper lip. And then it turned, and it displaced a tooth. And the bullet was sitting right there in the gap that the displaced tooth had, had been in previously. Wow. So essentially, you have to picture now uh, an X-ray of a man with a grin, but one of his teeth is actually a bullet. Um, so they took him back to the medical area. Uh, the examining doctor said, well, we've got to send you over to the dental area. They, they padded the room with ballistic material, and they pulled the bullet the same way that they would pull a tooth, so to speak. I mean, you know, they had to reach in there and deaden his gums and all the kinds of things that we're all familiar with. Well, so they, so they, they made – this was such, an, that's such a miracle. Of course, Sergeant C was just ticked off that they had to shave his mustache. But, um, <laughs> but but the, the there was such an amazing thing, and this this these X-rays actually were circulated in the Army Times, that soldiers were t cutting out this article from the Army Times, folding it up, putting it in their jump pants pockets. They were carrying it almost like a votive thing, almost like God, if you're doing this kind of thing, do it for me. And that's how faith often worked. Something that had been seemingly miraculous, something that inspired people, something that turned people's thoughts to God. They carried with them. They held in their hands. Uh, they put in their pockets, 
Um, they used it, you know, as more than a good luck charm. They they wanted it to turn their thoughts to God, and that was that was perhaps the most powerful thing circulating at the time that I showed up over there to uh, to be embedded. Would you say that the the American forces are less religious now? Because you say that in your book that what you wanted to do was really clear up a lot of misconceptions. One of the misconceptions uh, you said was that it's not that they were less religious, but that they uh, responded differently and engaged with faith differently than past generations had. Yes, I don't think they're any less religious. I think they are less traditional. Um, So, you know, I asked a soldier once what he believed. And he kind of looked up at the sky and he said, well, sir, um, about two parts, Sunday school, a little bit of Deepak Chopra, you know, the famous uh, spiritual teacher who's often on American television. Um, He said a couple of, maybe about two parts beer commercials. He was talking about inspirational statements from Budweiser and so on. Right. And then then he said, uh, maybe maybe a little, a, a few fortune cookies. That, that he was half joking, but he was trying to say, my faith is eclectic. Uh, my faith is non-traditional, and that's what I found over there. You know, we speak now uh, in technical and theological and kind of scholarly circles of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, people who don't claim any category uh-huh. of religion. And, but we shouldn't assume that the nuns are non-religious. They're just non-traditional. So it's very possible that you'll have nuns. Uh, who are people who are, you know, reading the Bible and uh, studying faith and in small groups, you know, for prayer and things like that. And that's what I found amongst the soldiers. You would have soldiers who wouldn't dare go to a chapel service or would not dare uh, take counsel with a military chaplain. Um, but they were reading the Bible. They were listening to podcasts from whatever famous preacher, you know, uh, was interesting to them uh, on, on, on their iPad, iPods and so on. Uh, they they were reading websites. They were getting together in small groups, and so uh, they were as active in, in with their faith as people who attend, you know, let's say my church. Um, but but they would never be considered traditional in any way. And then you have people who were even more eclectic than what I'm describing. You know, they would just take inspiration from five or six different religions. They might chant. They might meditate. Then they might read the Bible. You know, and then they might you know. Uh, you know, bow down and pray towards Washington, D.C. or something. You had very strange expressions. So my point is that they were no less religious and no less spiritually oriented. They were just less traditional and certainly less oriented to the military uh, chapel system. But what you're describing, you're saying less traditional, but what it sounds like is you're saying less Christian. Well, but not in every case. In fact, I was actually surprised at how Christian these folks were. Um I would have to say that of the troops that I was with, 75% were Christian in some form. Then you had your officially non-Christian, those who identified as Jewish, those who identified as Muslim, those who identified as Buddhist, etc. Um, and then within the Christian fold, you had uh, some who actually had you know, denominational affiliations. They knew they were Southern Baptists. They knew they were Catholic. They knew they were whatever. Um, and then you had others who were just sort of floating around within a general faith and, and wouldn't wouldn't even have had uh, a problem with adding elements of other faiths. I, you know, not to be insulting, but a little bit. This this would be a little bit in the mold of Oprah Winfrey. You know, who right. would just pull from any religion what she finds meaningful. Well, that's what some of these people were doing who would consider themselves Christian. But I would say that solidly seventy seventy five percent were in some way practicing Christianity. Now, they, they weren't flooding into chapel services, and at the time I was there, the war was earlier on, and they didn't even allow large gatherings of people for fear of bombings. Um, so they wouldn't even have had big chapel services. But many of these people were you know, praying together in their Humvees, praying together in their 
you know, back and back around their bunks, etc. And um, all of this was was surprising to me. So I found them to be uh, more Christian uh, and practicing more than I had expected. But yes, definitely non-traditional. I mean, you know, I I, I often tell the story of going to my first prayer meeting with a bunch of Marines. And so here are these guys who are just touching the back the backs of their hands because they're so loaded down with equipment and gloves and stuff, not really holding hands. But they, one guy just started praying, and he said, Lord, I just thank you for this effing day, and just help us to F these guys up, these enemies. And, I mean, just the, the guy clearly had a faith, but he had not been in any way churched or told that some of this talk and, and way of communicating was inappropriate. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And so I was hearing language I haven't heard since you know I played college football. And so um, all of that to say, yeah, non-traditional for sure, but definitely on a deeper journey, and most of those journeys Christian. One of the things that I found interesting was you talked about how so many people who got to Iraq needed to find some sort of faith because they needed to find meaning in what they were engaged with, whether it was believing that the war they were engaging in was a just war, whether it was believing that the the people they killed, that that was morally, a morally permissible action on their part, or just the strain of the face uh, of facing death every day, that they needed something to reassure them in that. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, we, we really don't perhaps understand because we see movies and we think this happens so easily. But one of the most difficult things a human being can do is kill another human being. And, uh, and then, of course, there's secondary. Secondary to that is facing your own death. And so all of this presses religious questions into the soul. And one of the things that uh, is really surfacing in the study of post-traumatic stress is that, yeah, it's hard for young people, it's hard for soldiers to see violence, it's hard for them to um, you know, see, experience the death of their, their buddies and so on. But what often is causing post-traumatic stress is really a moral issue of, did I do the right thing? Was I doing, so to speak, oh, I'm using my word now, not theirs, righteousness? Uh-huh. Was this a righteous kill? You'll hear them say that in the military. Um, if I killed a man, uh, if, I, if a civilian died because of what I did, was I doing a right and moral thing? Um, and there, there's even a, a school of thought within the, the therapy of post-traumatic uh, stress that, that really uh, deals with this moral issue. It's not so much that the, that the soldiers have seen violence. That certainly is jarring. And yes, we have you know, versions of shell shock in our modern army, just like we did in World War I. But the, 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 the issue that's beginning to grow and, and it becoming, we're becoming aware of it being more of an issue is that for many of these soldiers who are wrestling and having a difficult time, it's not just the conditioning of the violence and the tension that they are dealing with. It's the fact that they did things they now have to wrestle with morally. And if they can't reconcile it morally, um, then, of course, this haunts them for the rest of their lives. Um, whereas I'm not saying it's easy for those who feel like what killing they've done or what violence they've engaged in is moral but at least it settles better. You know, in other words, if I walk into a bank and I happen to be carrying a gun um, and a guy is, is shooting people and, and robbing the bank and just, and just killing civilians and I kill him, I'm, I'm not likely to be that haunted the rest of my life because I killed a bad guy. I saved lives. But if, I, you know, if, if it happens some other way and I'm unsure, um, if I'm unsure about what I've done, if I'm not sure he was a bad guy, did I, did I shoot the wrong guy, that kind of stuff. Well, soldiers deal with that kind of, those kinds of questions all the time. And that is what haunts most of them. And uh, so, so the, the whole issue of, um, is this a just war? Am I engaged in a just cause? And am I daily doing a just and righteous thing, a moral thing? Um, that's huge. And I, and I need to say quickly, even though I've gone along with this answer, that part of the, part of the problem is, 
that chaplains in the American military are actually prevented from discussing um, a religious justification for the war. Uh, they're actually dis the, prevented from discussing with their soldiers a, a moral rationale for the war they're engaged in. They're not allowed to speak about those things. Um, and matter, part of that is the U.S. military doesn't want you know uh, any soldier believing that they're involved in some kind of crusade. But for the average soldier, what they're most wrestling with is a moral rationale, a moral justification for the actions they're engaged in. And so somehow we've got to bridge this gap that allows chaplains to speak to those things because they're the primary moral officers in the field. Yeah, that's confusing. So you've got, you know, with the Iraq War, say, when it initially started, you've got, you know, Bush making the case and Cheney making the case and, you know, memorably Colin Powell making the case, and they're all making the case that this is a just war. And then when the men are seeking help after, you know, going into action, after potentially killing people, after certainly being part of raids that would have resulted in death, the very people that are there to help them through, uh, you know, difficult psychological circumstances aren't allowed to make the same case from their own perspective? Well, but yes, they are allowed to say, uh, you're doing a good thing here, you're freeing captives, you're removing a tyrant. That's kind of a civil, uh, secular, military level. Right. What, they're, what, what is not allowed is that Chaplain Jones is able to say to me, Stephen Mansfield, uh, Jesus is on our side in this. Um, this is a just war. God is with us. The other, the other side is, is evil. Um, they may even be sat satanic. And you are justified in killing this enemy, which is an enemy of God's purpose. Now, you see, the re I can you, we can both understand why this is dangerous territory. Mm -hmm. because, because if that chaplain says that to me, then this war for me has turned into a crusade. And that's exactly what we didn't want, particularly when we were fighting a Muslim army. Um, but nevertheless, for me, Stephen Mansfield, the soldier, this chaplain has got to be able to connect the actions I'm being required to engage in day in and day out uh, with the faith he's there to help strengthen in my soul. If I can't reconcile what I'm doing day in, day out with my faith, we're going to have a fissure that's going to that's grow, um, and, it's, and it's going to cause me the kind of psychological problems we see it causing a lot of people. So... Somehow chaplains, and I would say the same for you know the Jewish chaplain. I would say the same for the the Buddhist chaplain. I mean, if you're going to have people of these faiths at in battle, and you're going to have state-paid chaplains to minister to them, somehow they have to be able to address the moral issues of the war itself and, and what that soldier is required to do, even if they're not allowed to stray into the area of. Uh, you know, a, a, a big, a large-scale moral justification or spiritual justification for the war. But there's a disconnect there, and it's causing us problems. And as therapists are beginning to understand that post-traumatic stress is um, increasingly about moral issues, uh, the chaplains, again, are the main moral agents on the ground. So somehow we've got to free them to close these uh, these, these big gaps in, in, in the rationale and the worldview that, that is related to this war. So you say that we need to close that gap. On the other hand, one of the points that you, you came to in your book quite a few times, especially in your conclusion, is that because we live in a society that's becoming increasingly secular in many ways, and because we live in a society where you know the group that you, you refer to, nuns, is growing, uh, that chaplains often feel as if their position may be under fire and they should kind of just keep their head down. So how do you square that circle? Well, chaplains were some of the most heroic people I met in the field. But, yeah, they, they do feel under the gun. They do feel sidelined. Um, they're often used by command as um, sort of a consultant about religion, like help me understand, you know, what's the difference between Sunni and Shia, for example. 
to help me understand what what this Buddhist soldier is thinking, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. But but they're not necessarily used in some cases, and I'm not saying in all cases, but in some cases they're not exactly necessarily used as ministers. So yeah, they do feel sidelined. Um, they do feel like their unique ministry that would have been valued far more 50 or 100 years ago is not that valued. And uh, and often what they do is considered to be divisive. I mean, you know, you can have a conservative Southern Baptist, for example, um, chaplain. Well, he's not he's not necessarily in favor in some of the avant-garde uh, social positions that the military is taking, same-sex marriage, uh, things of that nature. And so, you know, he's he's got to keep his mouth shut if he's going to keep his job. Now, I'm not saying he's cowardly, but many chaplains in the military are dealing with these sorts of issues as the military has increasingly been a place for. You know, I would say almost social experimentation. So you're, you are these many of these guys do feel like they've got to keep keep it lived, keep it zipped, as they would say, and uh, keep their mouths shut. Uh, they will minister to individuals, but they that they try to shy away from uh, any kind of addressing of just war theory or things of that nature on a large scale because it tends to get them in trouble. And it, and it is a problem. We have it. We have an officially uh, a government that is meant to that the founding fathers intended to be influenced by religion but not dominated by religion, and yet that same government is actually employing chaplains to go guarantee the First First Amendment rights of American soldiers. And there's a certain amount of tension built into that, you know. And frequently, the the degree to which a military chaplain can express his faith or preach or minister is completely dependent upon the commander in the field. Right. That commander, uh, that particular battalion commander, for example, is not... Uh, very forthright about faith and not very open to faith, then that chaplain gets pretty much shut down. Uh, and this is this is part of the tension. And yet we've got soldiers, like I say, coming home, whose main issue is not so much, gee, I stood near an explosion or I saw my friend die, although that's terrible. Their main issue is, um, I fired a bomb that, that killed 15 people, children included, did I do a right thing? And that's that's where the, the moral issue has got to be more pronounced in terms of these chaplains' ministries. The social issues thing is actually an increasingly important point due to the social experimentation uh, thing that you mentioned. So here in Canada, for example, uh, I write for a couple of different publications, and I have uh, contacts in the military that will sometimes anonymously send me the sorts of diversity training they have to engage in. So in the Canadian Navy, I got sent um, the speech they had by by a transgender activist, which was explaining... Uh, it had the the gender bread man going through gender fluidity, and uh, somebody from the infantry also sent me some of their training, and mentioned that uh, the first time they th- this this course was supposed to happen, the soldiers acted like soldiers and they joked and made fun of everything, and and then they they they, they had to redo the training and they were warned by their officers that these sort of sort of very normal rowdy reactions were 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 like utterly unwarranted. And, and that you had to sort of treat a lot of this diversity training with the same respect that was once reserved for religion and for faith. And I'll give you one example that, that one infantryman uh, uh, anonymously sent to me. He said the difficulty is that the people, he said, for example, I serve alongside a lot of very, very brave gay men and women. But he said at the end of the day, every single soldier is very well aware that these people have the power to destroy our career with one complaint. And that has, he said, created a tension that everybody has to overcome because of the way uh, that these sorts of things haven't progressed in the military naturally, but have been sort of gerrymandered in in the past uh, five to ten years. What, what in, your, in, your, in your opinion, is, is going on in the American military at this point, and how did you experience that? 
Well, it's very much the same thing. I mean, the, all the soldiers I talked to uh, who were not gay or, or trans or any of any of the other, uh, all of them had, had respect for the soldiers that they were with as soldiers. In other words, like you say, they would say, look, I, I know six gay soldiers, and they're all, they're all fine warriors. However, uh, it's, the, it's what sometimes is referred to as the political correctness, uh, the hypersensitivity to the issue in command that makes it very, very volatile. So if, if a soldier's just heard telling a, a, a gay joke, for example, and, and of course this would be the same with a, with a racist joke, um, this can be career-ruining. I'm, I'm not saying there shouldn't be reprimand. I'm, I, I don't believe we should be allowing you know, people to be abused, verbally abused, uh -huh. told about them, things of that nature. However, you're absolutely right. There's a high level of sensitivity. And, of course, in the, in the thing that we're talking about in this interview, when it comes to, to chaplains, for example, you know, a Southern Baptist chaplain who ministers, let's say, in Dallas, Texas, would, would never be required against his conscience to marry uh, a couple, a, a gay couple. But in the military, that's, that's required or he loses his job. So you now have a situation where you'll have uh, chaplains. Now these, are, these are ordained clergy committed to certain very traditional views of uh, their faith. Um, and they're not just talking Christian, by the way, Jewish, Muslim, etc. But if they're in the if they're in the military chaplaincy, they can absolutely be required to engage in um, ritual services, wedding ceremonies, etc. That uh, and to officiate at these ceremonies that violate their faith. So we, we've got a we've got a very strange situation, and most of it's just kind of gone underground. It's been people are just keeping their mouths shut to keep their jobs and to not cause problems. But this is going to continue to be an issue. I mean, we're, we are, seem to be perpetually at war. Uh, we're constantly growing our military. Um, and so as a result, uh, and as, by the way, especially under the, under the Trump administration, we're growing it. And so this, the need for chaplains, the need for these kinds of ministries is going to be greater than ever. Um, but the, the level of dissatisfaction is pretty huge. And, when, and, and I, I've been tracking the trends of late. Uh, military chaplains are leaving the chaplaincy at a pretty, pretty high rate. Um, you know, their, their, their faith is more honored outside of the military, their salaries are higher, you know, et cetera. There's less of the move and the challenge and the risk. So why would they stay in the military where their, their faith is not very much appreciated? So these are, these are major, major policy issues, and I'm not sure, quite frankly, that senior levels of command even really are paying attention to these things, much less understand them. How do you think the social experimentation in the military will end? I know a lot of people here in Canada that are are more or less counting down the days till their contract is up or already discussing their options. For example, it's, of course, Pride Month across North America, and the Canada's Navy encouraged sailors to uh, march in uniform in the Pride Parade. Uh, one of my contacts in the military um, was going to be required to actually raise the rainbow flag over the naval base as the Canadian government requested, and it's only because he managed to get leave just a few hours before he would have been asked to that he managed to avoid doing this, or he would have been forced to make a choice, do I raise the flag of an ideology that I don't morally agree with, or do I refuse and, and, and potentially get written up, or worse, for disobeying the direct command of a superior? Do you think that these tensions are going to grow, or do you think there's any chance that we can find some sort of a, of, of a middle ground and, and, and proceed on in a way that actually is, orients the military towards its traditional task rather than towards the social experimentation it seems to be dabbling with at the moment? Yeah, I'm hoping we get past it, and, and maybe the only way to get past it is just for 
uh, a lot of these innovations and a, and a lot of this trendiness to sort of get become old hat, so to speak, so that we can get on with business. Um, the fact is that when you use the military and when you emphasize within military culture uh, any social cause other than being a lean, clean fighting machine, so to speak, um, you turned it in. You turn it into a bit of a social club. You move away from the military mandate. You move away from the the hard edge of what a military ought to be about, and so. Um, that that diminishes its mission. I mean, please don't hear me saying that having gay soldiers diminishes the mission. I don't believe that at all. Right. Uh, I, I want everybody who's an American to be able to serve in the military, but once they're in the military, I want their focus to be upon being the best fighting machine they can be so they can do what we're supposed to do in the world so that fewer lives are lost on both sides, by the way, but victories are won. Um, but when most of the uh, when a huge portion of time is spent in sensitivity training, you know, and so on. I mean, why, for example, would the gay flag uh, need to be raised over a military base? I mean, I don't, uh, you know, again, that's not the, your listeners don't even know how I feel about homosexuality. But I can, but I can certainly say that having to raise the gay flag over a military base is, is I mean, you you weren't being asked to raise the American flag or the British flag or the the flag of Uganda. I mean, what, this is not a separate nation that we're talking about. So this is an experiment. This is trendiness. This is an attempt to uh, force upon the military, which is under state control, uh, a, a level of political correctness that is a meant to radiate throughout the rest of the country. And I have to tell you that those in uniform resent this, because if they're in the military, what they want to be is, is, is proud and competent and strong and part of a, a, an amazing fighting force that does good in the world. That's why they're there. Um, and if they wanted to, be, to deal with uh, the latest trends in, in political correctness, they could have stayed in a university setting. Right. Uh, they, could, they could work in government. They could form a nonprofit organization and advocate for a cause. That's not why they're carrying a weapon or learning how to fly or, or you know, knowing how to do munitions. That's, that's not what they're there for. So there's a certain betrayal uh, in any kind of trendiness, and some of it's got to happen. We all certainly believe, for example, in the racial integration of the military. We're glad for the price that was paid for that. Uh-huh. But, but there has to come a point um, where we get beyond that being the main focus of the moment. And there are soldiers I've talked to who have spent more time in sensitivity training than they have in actually the use of their weapon. And that's not going to bode well for the future. It's not going to bode well for the motivation of these soldiers. One final question. You, you begin the book discussing the Christian warrior ethic. And you talk about how a lot of the people that you were embedded in Iraq with had to sort of explore the identity of what it meant to be a Christian soldier at the same time. Give our, give our listeners just a bit of an idea of, of, of what you found in your research when you were describing the Christian warrior ethic. Well, there's a long tradition of the Christian warrior ethic, and it comes very, very much out of the uh, medieval period more than any other time, largely because knighthood uh, systematized some of these things and, and uh, incorporated rituals. But um, soldiers would uh, fast and pray before being commissioned, and they would uh, literally hold their weapons aloft and offer them to God. And uh, this was not so that they could justifiably kill the other side. It was so that they would be uh, Committed to the to ideals and restraints and character that would be that would be important, um, and they they committed themselves to not harm civilians. They committed themselves to only engage in righteous fights and righteous warfare. They committed themselves to be skilled at what they did so that they didn't do undue harm. 
Uh, and then there were rituals of, of cowling and uh, and you know knighting, and we've all seen somebody take the sword and of course touch the shoulders and uh-huh. what have you. And of course, you're more familiar with that those rituals than we are down here in the states. But all of that to say that um, this this was an important part of the Christian warrior uh, ethic. It was an important part of uh, the thinking, and it, and it actually this this very same thinking flowed into the American military. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote about it uh, in the open in a little. A bit of text he uh, used in Bibles that were given by the New York Bible Society to every American soldier who fought in World War One, for example. So this kind of thinking was very much there. And again, the idea was not to create, you know, crazed religious warriors. The idea was to create uh, soldiers of nobility and character and morality and devotion to God, um, who would fight well, yes, kill evil uh, enemies, yes. Uh, but show restraint and character, not rape, not pillage, not do unnecessary damage, and uh, live out broader lives to the glory of God. And, and it's a very cherished heritage, though, of course, in the modern military, it's, it's again, exactly what's uh, under fire, so to speak, and uh, what chaplains feel limited in discussing. But I'm, I'm hoping that we can see a, a little bit more breadth and freedom in the coming years. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. Well, it's great to be with you. You're asking great questions, and it's an important topic, so thanks for treating it. You bet.